Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 91. Um, we will be looking at all 16 verses. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me there to Psalm 91. And hear now the word of the Lord. I'll be reading out of the ESV. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest, they, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, back in the uh, 4th and 5th centuries BC, uh, about 2,500 years ago, right around the time of Socrates, uh, there were two Greek philosophers, one by the name of Leucippus and the other Democritus. Uh, and they made the argument that the cosmos, that is the entire universe, was formed when an infinite number of atoms, these small, tiny, invisible particles, moved about at random through an infinite void and suddenly came together com completely by accident, by chance. When that happened, these two philosophers maintained, the universe as we know it was created. Uh, according to Leucippus and, and Democritus and those who followed in their footsteps who were known as the atomists, the universe, in short, sprung up at random. Um, there was no place for God or the gods in their understanding of the origins of the universe. There was no place for God or the gods in the present mechanisms of the world. And therefore, they taught that the world and everything in it has no ultimate purpose or meaning either. They maintained that it wasn't created with meaning or purpose. We're not really aiming it towards a higher meaning or purpose either. Uh, in many ways, this belief system is the ancient ancestor to that of modern, many modern-day atheists. Uh, now, as Christians, this is a belief system that I'm sure we can figure out we should rightly reject, right? After all, the Bible teaches us that, that God created the world indeed and, and everything in it. He created all things good. He created mankind as the apex of his creation, and he created all things with a very particular goal in mind, union and communion with himself. Friends, that God laced meaning and purpose into the fabric of the cosmos is baked into historic and biblical Christianity, and yet, so often, our experience in this world under the sun, this fallen and broken world, suggests to us wrongly that perhaps the atomists were right. After all, we all know that disease doesn't discriminate between Christians and non-Christians. We know that collateral damage in war swallows up the innocent just as it does armies. Uh, to cite the great theological treatise known as Hamilton, 
Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. This is how it often seems to us, too. Namely, that we live in a harsh world with cruel people where justice is lacking and we're daily subject to the harsh and indiscriminate dictates of fate. But if this is how the world seems to us, especially when we are submersed in the depths of woe, well, our psalmist this morning invites us to see the world with eyes of faith. He invites us to peer behind the unfolding of events in this world and consider that there is indeed a king who's calling the shots. There's purpose in this world. There's a destination that we're heading towards. And this king who's ruling and governing the cosmos, we learn, also takes a special care and notice of his beloved subjects in the process. Friends, though our eyes may suggest that we reside in a world of chaos and disorder and aimlessness, our psalm tells us that this is not the case, that we have a king, a God to cling to in this life who preserves us in the present and who one day promises to bring us in to a glorious home. So our big idea this morning is this, hold fast to the God of many names amidst the menaces of this age. Hold fast to the God of many names amidst the menaces of this age. I'm assuming it's on the, it's on the, the screen, it's in your bulletin. Um, three points that we're going to be looking at as we work through this text, and you can see some sub-points there too. Um, first, the God who provides deliverance. What does the psalm tell us about the nature of God? That's the first point. The second looks at the deliverance that God provides. What exactly does God promise his covenant people? And then third, the fellowship that we enjoy. The fellowship that we enjoy as we wait the completion, the consummation of the promised deliverance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those are our three points we're going to work through. But let's begin with our first one, the God who provides deliverance. Now, I recently read um, that the late Prince Philip, um, that is the the late husband of Queen Elizabeth II, the, the Queen of England, had by the time he died an official royal title that was over 130 words long. Um, At his funeral, I think it was back in April of this past year, uh, the Garter Principal King of Arms, whoever in the world that is, uh, proclaimed at his funeral, quote, Thus it hath pleased Almighty God to take out of this transitory life unto his divine mercy the late most illustrious and most exalted Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marianneth, and Baron Greenwich, King of the, or Knight of the Most Noble Order, of the garter, knight of the most ancient and most noble order of the thistle, and on and on and on. Uh, Prince Philip was apparently a royal figure by the time he died of many names. And what we learn at the outset of our psalm is that the Lord is likewise a great king of many names. With me at verses 1 through 2, where we first hear how God is described as the most high God. Most high God. Now, this is a name that signifies the Lord's exalted status over heaven and earth, over all things he created. He is, as both Melchizedek and Abraham confess in the book of Genesis, the possessor of heaven and earth. He stands above all things, and he owns all things as his own. But he's also a God who exercises real authority in his heavens and earth. He's not in the slightest closed off from his creation or what happens in this world. He's not in the slightest an absentee landlord. And this is communicated in the second name of God in verse 1, where he's not just the most high God, but he's also the Almighty, a name that communicates the real power that God exercises in this world. And it also implies that God wields that power 
according to his gracious purposes, according to the fullness of who he is. Uh, His power, in other words, is a gracious power. His power is a just power. His power is a wise power because God is also gracious, just, and wise. Then we move to verse 2 and we hear the psalmist use another name. He he calls upon the Lord as, quote, the Lord. Uh, In Hebrew, this is arguably the most significant name of the four names that we're going to see because this is the name Yahweh. Uh, This is the name by which God reveals himself to Moses in the desert in Exodus chapter 3. This name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb to be or to exist, and it carries with it much significance in understanding and communicating who God is. It communicates that God is what we call immutable, meaning that God doesn't change in his essence. He doesn't change in his promises. He doesn't change in his love. He doesn't change in his character or in the covenant relationship he establishes with you and me. The name Yahweh also communicates God's self-existence, meaning that unlike us, God isn't dependent on anyone else. He doesn't rely on us to build his church. He doesn't need our worship to inflate his ego. He's self-existent. As you can see then, there's a lot that's captured in this third name, the Lord, Yahweh. But then there's one more name that we read in the second line of verse 2, where the psalmist personalizes his confession, and he calls upon the Lord very simply as my God. This is a name that goes back to the, the creation account in Genesis, a name that communicates God's absolute power over all things he's made, and a name that's when, it, when it's invoked by, by the people of God, as it is by the psalmist here, reminds us of the security we have as the people of God. We belong to the one who spoke a word, and the cosmos was formed. Spurgeon is correct, I think, when he writes, quote, my God means all and more than all, than the heart can conceive by way of security. Now, strictly speaking, God is is actually nameless within himself. Um, God is infinite and incomprehensible, and no name can really capture the fullness of who he is. And yet, nevertheless, in the scriptures, God graciously accommodates himself to his people, to people like you and me, so that through these many names, we can know just who the God we worship really is. Now, perhaps for you, this, this brief venture over the last few minutes or so into the names of God, um, and broadly speaking, into what we refer to as the doctrine of God, the teaching about God, maybe it seems to you like it's a little bit dry or divorced from the practical things of life. After all, it's, it's good, I suppose, to know that God is triune. Um, the early church spilled much ink to get that doctrine right. Uh, it's good to know the attributes of God, and it's perhaps interesting to know that in the scriptures, a, a number of names are also attributed to this one God. But the question then is raised for us, perhaps, that what practical implications does this carry for us? Well, bear in mind that name indicates nature. God's name tells us what God is like, and what we believe in our heart of hearts that God is like significantly impacts everything we do in our lives. In July of uh, 1944, at the height of World War II, uh, when U.S. forces were nearing Uh, the completion of the Battle of Saipan in the Pacific Theater. Um, They had spent about three weeks on the island at that point in July of 1944. Uh, They were in the process of securing an air base so that it could be used for long-range bombers and the uh, prolonged war in the Pacific Theater. But as they were securing the final pockets on the island of Saipan, they witnessed something that was horrible. Um, From a distance, U.S. soldiers watched in horror as hundreds of Japanese civilians 
including mothers with their children, leapt over the edge of two separate cliffs into the water below. Uh, one of these cliffs was later named Suicide Cliff for the events that transpired. So why in the world would these civilians, these Japanese civilians, kill themselves in mass numbers by jumping off cliffs as U.S. soldiers approached? What, what kind of beliefs would ever prompt an action like that? Well, during the Battle of Saipan, many of these civilians were so indoctrinated by a Japanese propaganda machine that sought to paint U.S. military forces as barbaric, brutal, and inhumane in their treatment of civilians, such that should they fall into American hands, they would either be tortured or even eaten alive. And so many civilians were convinced in their heart of hearts that instead of waiting for the American forces to arrive and do their worst, that it would have been better just to take their own lives. And so many did. Understand that such a tragic outcome was driven in large part by what they believed in their heart of hearts about the nature of their enemy. Now, to be sure, it's a struggle to conceive how one could ever arrive at the conclusion that many of the Japanese civilians in 1944 arrived at in Saipan. But it goes to show that what we believe in our heart of hearts about the nature of someone can influence drastic courses of action in our lives. The question this raises then as it pertains to our text is whether or not we really believe that a God is exactly what the psalmist proclaims through his many names. In other words, if we really believed that God is just, for example, that's a frequent confession of the scriptures, that God is just, well, we wouldn't be a people who seek vengeance when we're sinned against. And yet how often do our temperatures rise when that happens and we're sinned against? How often do we fantasize about turning the tables on someone who's maligned our character? Think about God's mercy. If we really believed in our heart of hearts that God is merciful towards us and that he's compassionate and kind and takes pity on us despite what our sin and rebellion against God has merited, we would also be a people who willingly and graciously extend mercy outwards to others whether or not they've done anything to merit it. And yet, is that our experience as we walk in the world? And if we really believe that God is a refuge and a shelter, well, we would find our comfort and assurance in him throughout this present age rather than pursuing comfort and security as we so often do in the arms of other lovers. Understand that what we believe, heart, mind, and soul about God inevitably impacts our approach to the practical stuff of life. So all that raises the question, what do you really believe about God? And what informs those beliefs? Let me encourage all of us that, that as we live our lives under the sun, as we live our lives in this fallen and broken world, friends, let the scriptures, rather than your own experience, inform your most deeply held beliefs about the Lord. And, and study the doctrine of God. Know that, of course, the scriptures have a lot to say about how we live as exiles and sojourners in a world that's at enmity with God. They have a lot to tell us about how we live our lives and love our neighbors and raise our kids. But above everything else... The Lord is the main character of the scriptures. The Bible above everything else is about God. And we would do well to make God the center of our approach to the scriptures too. So the God our psalmist would have us know, the God who goes by many names is also the God that he calls us to cling to, the God he calls us to trust in. But now that the psalmist has reflected a bit on these first two, in these first two verses about who this God is, 
he then moves in the next 10 verses or so to demonstrate why the Lord is a formidable fortress and refuge for us to pursue in this life under the sun. So this leads to our second point, the deliverance that God provides. And when we turn to verses 3 through 13 of our passage, we read right away that God affirms to us some pretty remarkable, almost unbelievable promises about the present security and deliverance he provides. Remember that earlier we talked about how in this life under the sun, it so often seems like death doesn't discriminate. In the words of Ecclesiastes, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. And yet while this is very often what this life under the sun looks like for us, from a divine perspective, the psalmist indicates that the God of many names also pours out upon his church many promises for us to cling to in this age. So first, look with me at the remarkable promises of deliverance and protection and shelter that God announces in our passage. We read how God promises deliverance from the snare of the fowler. It's basically a hunter's trap. And then deliverance from deadly pestilence or protection from deadly pestilence, that is disease. He promises that we have nothing to fear from the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. And then later he tells us that no plague will come near your tent. So whether the threat is more pronounced in the daytime or the night, and whether the threat is seen as arrows are or unseen as deadly pestilence is, God promises a full scope of protection and deliverance either through these things or from these things. Then we learn that God himself is the one who promises to be our source of protection and deliverance amidst these threats. He promises amidst these threats that are seen and unseen to be like a mother bird who covers us with her pinions, under whose wings we find shelter. He promises that his truth will be to us a shield and a buckler, that is, armor. To cite one commentator, quote, In American parlance, those who are protected are the Teflon people, whose shield is nothing less than the faithfulness of God. Then our psalmist repeats in verse 9 what he's already confessed over and over again, namely in verse 2, that the Lord is our dwelling place and our refuge. Brothers and sisters, these are bold promises. Promises that maybe even on the surface of things seem fantastical or, or even foolishly optimistic amidst the indiscriminate hand of death that falls on everyone. And yet, when we understand the true nature of the greatest threats that we face, Only then will we be in a better place to grasp the true nature of the promises that God holds out for us to. To put it simply, God isn't promising us in this passage that the faithful never succumb to death in this world. That wasn't true of Jesus, and that won't be true of us either. He doesn't promise us that we'll never be subject to injustice in this world, nor does he promise us that the Christian will never get sick and die. But he does promise us that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved through these things. Understand that according to the scriptures, our primary battle in this world is just not, as Paul puts it, quote, against flesh and blood. Of course, we fight for justice in this world as much as we know how. Yes, we seek the physical well-being of ourselves and our neighbors. We looked at the sixth commandment earlier, which maintains that we have to do just that. But the eternal make-or-break battle that we face in this world 
is not of this world. To cite the Apostle Paul as he continues in the book of Ephesians, we wrestle against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The deliverance, then, that God promises in our passage is that even if, even if pestilence and war or some other threat costs us our very lives, there's something bigger at stake, the salvation of our souls. And yet for those who say of the Lord with the psalmist, my refuge and my fortress and my God and whom I trust, well, those are the Teflon people who will know the salvation of God, even in death. You know, there's a story in the Bible in uh, 2 Kings 6 that I think is particularly instructive at this point. Now, in that particular story, the one that I'm thinking of from 2 Kings 6, the prophet Elisha, um, Elijah is off the scene at this point, so Elisha is the main prophet. Uh, he wakes up one morning in the city in which he's living, and, and when he wakes up, he finds that the king of Syria, a hostile nation of the day, has positioned himself and his army all around the city walls for the purpose of capturing Elijah. I can't imagine that, though, waking up one morning to find that an enemy army is camped outside your home. Well, this was Elisha's experience. An entire hostile army was waiting outside, not so much to invade the city, but they were actually there for him. They were there for the prophet. Now, at the sight of this, Elijah doesn't flinch at all. He's actually not that scared. But his servant, Gezi, is terrified that there's this army amassed just outside the city for the one he serves. And so what in the world are they going to do? Well, Elisha sees that his servant Gezi is bothered. And even though he's not, Elijah pauses at that moment and he prays. And he asks the Lord uh, that the Lord would show his terrified servant the reality that they are indeed protected by the Lord, even when their eyes might suggest that they should panic. And in an instant, the Lord answers Elisha's prayer. The young servant Gezi opens his eyes, and what does he see? Well, he sees another army. He sees the army of the Lord with horses and chariots of fire arrayed all around them, all outside the city on the hilltops as this hedge of protection against the army of Syria. Now understand that the promises of protection in our passage in Psalm 91 are no less real, even though to be sure they are more spiritual in nature. And actually, because they're spiritual and eternal in nature, they carry far more weight with them. But the challenge for us is, of course, not to expect some divine army to wipe out every threat we face on this earth, but rather to begin looking at the world with eyes of faith. When we see in this world that it appears the hand of death doesn't discriminate, that pestilence and cancer and all sorts of other various diseases come just as much to the faithful as well as the unfaithful, it's understandable why we might despair of life itself. But when we see the world through the lens of the scriptures, through the lens of these promises, when we see the world through eyes of faith, we begin to identify, first and foremost, where our ultimate battle lies. We begin to see that what we need saving from in this world isn't necessarily deadly pestilence or the arrow that flies by day, although to be sure they're not good things, but rather that we need saved from a bigger enemy, sin, death, and the devil. We need saved from the grip of the wisdom of this world that so often has on our minds and hearts. And the promise to you and to me in this passage is that in Christ, the Lord offers us this kind of protection, this kind of salvation for his people. 
And the challenge for us in light of that is that we would open our eyes, our eyes of faith, to see the goodness and the reality of the promises that are available to us in the gospel. But not only does God promise us in this passage protection, which of course he does, he not only uh, takes this defensive posture towards his flock as he guards us under his wings, but as we continue in the passage, we also learn that God will go on the offensive, as it were. Uh, Notice in verse 7 that the psalmist proclaims, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only need look with your eyes to see the recompense of the wicked. Understand, friends, that we were not designed in this world to live apart from union and communion with God in Christ. And yet, tragically, when we see our neighbors or our loved ones do just that, or maybe when we think back to our own lives and we remember a time when we did that, we often witness the tragic outcome for people that we love. When God hands people over to their sin, when he gives natural man the delusions of his heart, the fall is quite hard. And one day the Lord promises that those who stand opposed to his purposes will will not just fall upon their own folly, as we sometimes find ourselves doing, but upon the judgment of God. This is the tragic trajectory for for any who stand against God and his purposes. And it's one that should drive us as Christians to pray and plead with those we love who are destined on their present trajectory to fall and to fall hard. We then hear in verse 13 a little bit more about this judgment, too. Uh, We hear, in fact, how we as the church are somehow involved in this judgment. In verses 11 through 13, we read, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Friends, this is a promise that's held out for the church. Um, Jesus tells his disciples, after all, in Luke 10, 19, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And then Paul, at the very end of the book of Romans, declares to the church, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. In summary, God promises that evil will not prevail in his world. That sin, death, and the devil will one day be judged and put away for good. As the hymn writer Samuel Stone eloquently put it once, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Friends, the Lord promises to be our refuge in the present He promises to be our rest, even in death. And he promises also to be our victory at the end of the age. But perhaps this begs the question, why? Why do all of these grand promises belong to fallible people like us? Why in the world do these promises belong to broken sinners who have rebelled against the God of the cosmos like you and me? Well, they belong to us, friends only because they first belonged to Jesus. When we read through this passage earlier and we came to verses 11 through 12, those verses may have sounded somewhat familiar. And the reason is probably because you know those two verses as they're recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Um, In both Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4, as we heard in our scripture reading earlier, we read that uh, when Jesus started his public ministry, what happened first? Well, he was led out until the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by Satan. 
And in the second temptation from Luke's gospel, um, which was read earlier, that Jesus faces, we read how Satan actually cites from Psalm 91, 11 through 12 in order to persuade Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. He persuades Jesus to do that and says, your angels, God's angels, uh, will catch you, so don't worry about it. But how does Jesus respond to that? Well, we heard how Jesus responds. He says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. Now, as a brief aside, I find it somewhat ironic that Satan cites from these two verses in Psalm 91, when in the very next verse, in verse 13, there's a promise of his own demise. I will tra- you will trample the serpent. Um, if anything here, Satan offers a good example of reading scripture out of context. Um, but what he omits from his quotation of Psalm 91 is exactly what Jesus Christ did in the fullness of time. Understand that Jesus is the one who does what was promised for us all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin, God promised that through Adam and Eve that there would one day arise one, one from their loins who would crush the head of the serpent. Friends, understand that Jesus resisted the temptation that was brought to him in Luke 4, so that by the time we get to Luke 24, he would crush the kingdom of Satan. And while he hung on the cross, the Lord refused to call down legions of angels so that he could tend to our ultimate needs and then call down legions of angels for you and for me. Understand that when we look back through this entire psalm and we read of all of these incredible promises for the one who truly trusts in the Lord, who's made the Lord his refuge and his peace and his strength, we need to understand that the only reason in the world these promises are true for us is because they were first true of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus was the one who clung to the Lord perfectly and perpetually in his life under the sun. Only Jesus, in his state of humiliation, made the Lord his refuge and his dwelling place from start to finish. And only Jesus stands on his own record when we would be judged and condemned on the basis of ours. The person our psalmist speaks to before he speaks to you and me in verses 3 through 13 is Jesus. And only through faith in this Jesus can we appropriate all of these promises as our own. Elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus, or gospel rather, Jesus is described uh, using the language of verse four of our psalm, where he describes himself as a mother hen who longs to gather his chicks under his wings for protection. Like what um, St. Augustine writes on this, he writes, quote, just as a mother hen has to weaken herself out of love to protect her chickens because they are weak, well, so too, Since we too were weak, the wisdom of God made itself weak when the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that we might hope under his wings. Augustine then continues, that Jerusalem was not willing. Let us be willing. In short, let us be willing to find our refuge and our strength and relief in Jesus Christ through faith alone. Only then will we be granted the salvation and the refuge that's richly promised to us in Psalm 91. Now, the essence of these promises um, speaks to God ruling and defending his people as king, even in death. There's a lot of kingship imagery going on throughout this passage. Uh, The Lord is a king who, who defends his church. But when we come to the final three verses of our passage, we're reminded how else God tends to our souls in the present too. So third and finally, third point here, um, the fellowship we enjoy. 
So notice that when we reach verse 14, if you're looking at your Bible, the speaker suddenly shifts. Up until now, the psalmist, whoever he was, has been the primary speaker. But now in verse 14, we hear the Lord step into the psalm and begins to speak in the first person. And this in itself, I think, is reason for comfort. As one commentator, Willem van Gemmeren, puts it, it is, great, it is ground for confidence that the last word is not spoken by us, but to us. The parting words of this psalm are intended to shine the spotlight on our present lives under the sun, not to discourage us, but instead to remind us that while there's protection and refuge that we enjoy under the wings of Almighty God, even if that would lead to our death, this is also a personalized deliverance from a personal God who fellowships with his people in this present evil age. In short, the Lord is a warrior who fiercely defends and delivers his church. And we've read all of that in verses 3 through 13. But now we learn that he's also our father who draws near to us tenderly in fellowship to deal tenderly with our souls. About a month ago, um, we had a large storm come through Omaha. Not sure if you got the same storm or flooding up here in Fremont, but uh, in Omaha, the storm at least registered something like 95 mile per hour winds. Um, my family and I joke, we got out of Florida to avoid hurricanes, and yet, you know, here we are in Nebraska experiencing hurricane like winds. Uh, well, when the storm came through, and I was watching out the window as tree trunk sized limbs tore off my tree and scattered across my backyard, uh, the tornado sirens suddenly went off in the area and began blaring all around us. Uh, now, at the time, I didn't know that sirens were activated uh, when the wind speeds reached 75 miles an hour. And if you didn't know that, now you know that, too. Um, so there wasn't actually a tornado, but at the time, I didn't know that. My first thought was there's a tornado coming through. And so without sparing a second, I rushed up to the kids' bedrooms. I grabbed the kids and scooted them down to the basement. Now, in the process, I had only one goal in mind, get the kids, get the family down to the basement. Uh, but my kids, understandably, were quite dazed and confused. This was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and they didn't understand what was going on. They both had questions that they, need an they needed answered, but I couldn't attend to any of those needs or answer their many questions when I had one goal in mind. I have to protect my kids, protect my family, and get them down to the basement. Understand that as parents and as human beings, we all have limits and we all have priorities. And when we're stretched too thin trying to deal with an immediate threat or danger, like a tornado, we may not be the most affable people in the world, especially when we are dazed and confused at 1 a.m. and worrying how in the world we're going to clean up our lawn the next morning. And yet, just as the Lord rules and defends us from our sworn enemies, just as he fiercely defends his church as a king, he also fellowships with us as our Father. He tenderly tends to our troubled souls when we have questions amidst the various threats we face. Yes, absolutely, we need a God who, who flexes his muscles, as it were, but we also need a Father who nourishes us with grace in the present too. And these promises lie at the heart of our final section in this psalm. Look particularly with me at verse 15, where the Lord tells us, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. The God of many names, even amidst the, the many troubles of this age, is a God who hears our many prayers. In an earlier psalm, we hear an equally rich promise in Psalm 50, verse 15, when we're told that when we call upon the name of the Lord, in simply doing that, we actually glorify the Lord in the process. 
The Lord hears our many prayers, and he's actually glorified by our prayers. He's not annoyed. He's not deaf to them. He's not distracted as a king by other concerns. So brothers and sisters, whatever fears grip your soul in the present, don't be so paralyzed by fear that you are inoculated by a spirit of prayerlessness. Because the one who powerfully delivers us is the same one who tenderly persuades us that he can be trusted. The one who lavishes his grace upon grace in the present upon us and who invites us into his presence boldly. He's the God who's pleased to fellowship with us, who who walks among us as we make our journey through Vanity Fair. I love the image that Revelation uses in the, in the outset where it tells us that Jesus is, is the one who walks among his lampstands, which in that context refers to his church. He promises that whatever despairs we encounter, he'll satisfy us, satisfy us with long life. Now, this isn't a bare promise that we will undoubtedly live beyond the average age expectancy of an average adult in the Western Hemisphere or anything like that. But it is a promise that however many years the Lord gives us in this life under the sun, whether we die young or we die old, that we will be satisfied in those years so long as they're years that are lived in fellowship with God. It continues to be a case that we live in a world that's hostile or at least at odds with the kingdom of God and her citizens. But these verses, particularly these last three verses, remind us that in Christ we belong to a different kingdom. Our citizenship is of a heavenly city without deadly pestilence or war. And in the present, though we sojourn on this earth, in this fallen and broken world, we first and foremost have an embassy of this city in the church and access to the king of that city while we await his triumphal procession to take us home. So what should we do with all of this? What should we take away from all of this? Well, let me leave us with one takeaway. Know the God who delivers his church. Know the God who delivers his church. And when I say, when I say no, I actually mean that in two senses. On the one hand, know what the Bible says about God. In my humble opinion, we often look at the doctrine of God, again, what the scriptures have to say about who God is, the nature of God, and so on and so forth. I think very often we see a Grand Canyon-sized chasm between our theology of God on the one hand and how we live our lives and the practical stuff of life on the other hand. And yet, I'd argue, for reasons we've already stated above, that there is no more practical doctrine than the doctrine of God. Uh, Sometimes in theological parlance, not to bore you, um, we divide our theology into various categories. So maybe you've heard the term practical theology before, where we're talking about things like preaching and um, shepherding a church, things like that. And then over here, we have systematic theology, which covers the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, Now, I completely understand those categories and appreciate those distinctions. I'm not on some kind of vendetta to overturn them. Uh, But the unfortunate outcome is that it may leave us with the impression that our systematic theology broadly and our confession of who God is is something that's not practical at all. And yet it is. As I said before, what we believe in our heart of hearts about who God is affects everything. So what do you really believe about God? And be honest with yourself. Are those beliefs about God informed by experience, informed by popular opinion, or do they arise out of an exhaustive wrestling with the word of God? But on the other hand, it's not enough to simply work out an exhaustive confession of God if this isn't the God that you love, if this isn't the God who really gets to shape your mind and heart in the present. If this isn't the God, as the psalmist puts it, 
who you call upon as my God. In short, to know God implies that you also know him as your God, that, that, the, that he really is the shelter under whose wings you dwell, uh, that he really is the one who protects you, even if following him requires your very life, and that he really is able to satisfy you in the present. And so know what the scriptures say about this God. Know how in Christ you are beloved by the God of the universe. Know that this God is able to satisfy you in the present, but also know this God as your God by embracing his son, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that amidst tumults of war, amidst deadly pestilence in this life under the sun, amidst death and destruction and chaos, that you are the God who stoops low to us in the covenant to issue these remarkable promises. Lord, we pray that although our experience may indicate that the indiscriminate hand of fate rests on all of us, that you are the God who's taken special notice of your people. You're the God who reigns above, and yet you're also the God who embraces us as your very people, as your subjects. Lord, would you help us to see the world with eyes of faith, According to your scriptures, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.